it is time for Apollo Swattered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today we're going to talk about Stephen, the biblical character of Stephen. Now, you might think that Stephen is removed from you and he has no relation to your way of life or how you're living, and you would be way wrong. And here's why. I want you to imagine for a moment being in a classroom in school and a teacher asks a question and then everyone kind of looks around waiting to find or have someone raise their hand to answer because they're not exactly sure how to take the question. So one person raises their hand, gives an answer, and then suddenly you have an idea on how you are to respond because now you are intending or now you understand what that teacher means. You see... Research has shown that whoever is the first person to answer a question in a classroom actually formulates that question for everyone else in the classroom. And I want to take Stephen as the the first person that really sets the stage for everybody else because we see him as the first martyr within church history. And we also see his way of life, how he responds, how he serves, how he does or lives out this Christian life. And I want us to look at him because while we may not be able to do some of the things that he did, we may or may not go through all of the things that he went through. However, we can be challenged to follow, serve, and testify as he did with our friends, our family members, coworkers, classmates, and neighbors. So let's see how we can succeed or follow Stephen, our brother. And a word from our sponsor, because today's episode is brought to you in part by Derek Eastman Insurance Agency. If you're looking for life, home, or auto insurance, then Derek Eastman is your guy. Get a free quote from Derek Eastman in Sugar Grove, Illinois at 630-466-1144. So let's get into our passage. Acts chapter 6, verse 8 through 15. And if you're like me, you probably read through this a few different times. If not, then I I am excited to walk you through this passage. But for many of us, we kind of fly over it a bit because we feel that it's not really appropriate or descriptive of our life situation. And we have to ask ourselves the question, whenever we see a text in scripture, what's it there for? So we see this passage and we come upon it again in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And this is what we read. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. As we look at this passage today, we really can see that Stephen gives us an amazing example to follow. God gives us biographies throughout the scripture, and they're there for our inspiration. I mean, they they can either be a good or an evil example. 
someone to follow or someone to avoid. And here we have our big brother giving us an example to follow. We're always desperate for examples in our world. Stories of those we can follow after. We're always looking for inspiration. That's why it's important, by the way, whenever we, we celebrate different people for their accomplishments, because people that are like that person, it could be their ethnic group or their gender, it could be something like that, that when it's put in front of them, they draw inspiration. That's why it's so important for us to have a diversity of voices, because we all need that. We need to be encouraged in that way. And all too often, we find that the examples we have placed before ourselves in some regards, though, are not that great when you peel back the layers of their life. Just because they might be famous or they've accomplished something doesn't mean that they are successful in the right ways. I was talking to a man the other day who has a massive Twitter following. He has, I mean, tens of thousands of people, and yet he seems to be so cynical and miserable, and every time that he posts something online, there are so many people that come against him. And I asked him, how do you hold up under all that scrutiny? And he says, truth be told, I'm, I'm really struggling. And, and we think that that's so great, but we realize all the stress that comes with it is not that great. And I think that we need to have a new definition or recalibrate our definition of what success is because the world gives us so many different ideas of success. And I remember being in church and there was the constant discussion, and I've heard this at many different churches around the tables of so many different leaders, the measurables. They talk about the measurables. How big is the church? How many people are we reaching? I mean, what's the budget like? Is growing? How many baptisms? How many butts in the seat? And on and on and on. And oftentimes, though, we neglect other items or we highlight those items at the detriment of the other. And here's what I mean. Imagine two wings of an airplane for a moment. And on one side of that airplane are the buildings, the bodies, the budgets, the baptisms, all those bees, right? And then on the other side, though, are the things that don't fit into a stat sheet. They are, they are the things like holiness, surrender, working through issues and your sanctification, giving up idols, your increased in your prayer life, petitions, fasting. Those things don't fit on a budget sheet. And so we have to understand that both are valuable. The problem is, is that we have a tendency to overemphasize one or the other. Some churches might be so focused on the buildings, bodies, budgets, etc., that they lose focus on the, the fasting, the surrender, the holiness, the heart checks. And they're so busy focused on the hard facts. And other churches, though, are so focused on the hard checks and they're not reaching anybody. Therefore, they think that they're doing it right. And the other churches that are reaching people are doing it wrong. And they do that to console themselves because oftentimes they're frustrated in that they can't figure out exactly how to reach people. So they comfort themselves with the idea that at least I'm doing something. And I understand that because I've been there. I understand exactly what that's like. And we always have to challenge ourselves because we have a tendency to go to one side of the airplane or the other. Either it's the 
hard facts or the hard checks. And we need both of those. And we need to look at Stephen because he really gives us an example of faithfulness. It's not about the numbers. It's not about everything going on around us and being the 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 trending topic on Twitter or getting enough followers and so on and so forth. It's loving. It's being faithful. It's, it's dispensing the calling that God has laid upon our hearts in the most faithful way. And that's what we have going on here. And he's a great example for us. Story. He's, he provides a story of, of someone that we can follow after. And all too often, as I said before, we find that the examples we have placed before ourselves are not that great when you peel back the layers of their life, meaning that they might have a great ministry on the surface, but deep down they are very broken. Now, we're all broken, but some are more broken than others, and they won't realize or at least validate their brokenness. Now here, we're introduced to Stephen uh, last week as a man full of faith and ready to serve the Hellenistic widows. And if you want to know more about that, go back into last week's episode entitled Growing Pains, and we talk about that. But now we see that this ministry has shifted somewhat, uh, as we see in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Remember, he was serving Hellenistic widows, and now he is doing great Sign, wonders and signs among the people. Before we look at what it means to be full of grace and power, I want to examine the most startling part of what he was able to do. He was able to do great wonders and signs among the people, as I said before. And the wording indicates that it is supernatural and miraculous. However, he wasn't doing this to show off his own abilities, for he really had none by himself. This was a man who was a devout pursuer of God, whom God had supernaturally gifted to do great signs and wonders. Signs refer to things done that were meant to authenticate the gospel message, which was also an indication that his ministry was a continuation of Jesus's. The word wonder in Greek refers to a miraculous wonder done to elicit a reaction from onlookers, an extraordinary event with its supernatural effect left on all witnessing it. This is the first instance of someone outside of Jesus and the apostles doing something miraculous. However, that doesn't mean that God still doesn't use people to do some things that are similar. There were some who were definitely gifted in that manner, and we can see that at times it happened through individuals whom God had chosen, such as Stephen. But it wasn't only regulated to him. It happened in churches, as it did in the church of Galatia, where there were no apostles present, as we read in Galatians 3.5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know, God gifts some with the ability to do the miraculous, as we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Now there are varieties of gifts, that's a double plural in Greek, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts, I'm sorry, that's the double plural in Greek, gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. 
All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. We can see that he had the spiritual gift to be able to do the miraculous, not by his own accord, only as the spirit sovereignly dictates. And it is never for the promotion of the person. It is for the common good of the church so that we might be reminded that God is still working among his people and so that others might be one to the gospel. And while we may not be able to generate signs and wonders as he did, there are still some things that we may do. We can't make ourselves do miracles, nor can we try to manipulate God to do it. God does this as he wills. God still does work wonders, however, and these wonders are often not the ones done on platforms or on TV stations. God never does the miraculous to elevate the person, but to reveal or show his name, his power, and for the common good of his people. And what I've noticed is that he often does it behind the scenes. He's not doing it for the show or for the fanfare because he doesn't want people to follow just for the miraculous, but as a love response to what he has done for us in Christ. And while we may not be able to generate signs and wonders, we too, though, can be God-centered. Stephen was a man who was devout. He attended synagogue and probably became a believer during Peter's first sermon, if not soon after. We're actually not told of his conversion exactly, but being Hellenistic, it seems that he came to faith early on in the church's history. <laughs> After all, everything is early on in the church's history right here. He was serving, full of faith, ready to do whatever God wanted him to do. He was sold out for Jesus. Jesus was at the center. And for many of us, though, let's be honest, God is on the periphery. We would rather be scrolling through our social media feeds or looking through what we're going to be watching on Netflix or Hulu or Roku or whatever site, YouTube, that you want to look at. And I see people get into arguments all the time about a variety of different issues that they're passionate about. And while I appreciate the zeal, I often wonder if it's misdirected. For many of us, God is on the periphery. And let's ask, let's ask ourselves that question. Where is God in our lives? I mean, honestly, what position does he occupy in our heart? I've had a hard time understanding why someone would want to spend eternity with God if they really don't want him now. And this is why I get really frustrated at funerals, and I don't mean to be. I know God is gracious. I know he's merciful and much more merciful than I ever will be. But I also know what the word of God says. And there are so many people that I've met over the years where they have this moral therapeutic deity where everybody goes to heaven without an understanding of Jesus, without a yielding to Jesus, without confessing Jesus. It's, it's, it's so bothersome and insulting to me. Not that I'm not insulted that God is gracious and forgiving. I am insulted that people think that they can live their life any way they want to without any hint of repentance or love for God, and yet God would still receive them into eternity. Why would a person want to be with God in eternity when they didn't want him now in this life? And that breaks my heart. It really does. Eternity should be the realization of the longing we've had on earth that showed itself in heartfelt obedience and love toward others. 
Let's get back here for a second. Stephen was also full of grace. And since this phrase came before the mention of signs and wonders, which I know many of us are so preoccupied with trying to, I mean, manifest the signs and wonders, I think we get off track. I mean, he was full of grace. And since this phrase comes before the mention of the signs and wonders, we can assume it was God showing through him. Some believe that the word grace is intended to refer to spiritual charm or winsomeness. God's grace had so changed him that he became a gracious person. And we too can become gracious. We become gracious once we experience God's grace. I have to laugh. I've seen so many churches with the the term grace in the title, and it usually means stay away from that church because Rarely does it actually have grace in it. It's more of a wish than anything else. And honestly, when you experience grace in the way that I think God intended, you are changed forever. And it is something so surprising, something so amazing, and in many ways, scandalous. When we become, when we experience God's grace, we become gracious. And I mean, really, what does that mean? It is the realization of our true state before God and how much we deserve punishment, alienation, shame, being put away, and death, coupled with the understanding that God has given us the gift of his favor because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. I mean, have you realized what Jesus has done for you? I'm not trying to manipulate. I'm just trying to think a little bit on more on what Christ has done, because the cross is the center of everything that we've done. And it's the folly of the cross or the the, the preaching of the cross that is foolishness to this world. And when I think of the cross and all that means, I am in awe. You know, there's a theory that someone else was crucified in his place. Some believe it was actually Judas. And if so, that would be the greatest con job in history. And here's why. First of all, Jesus was well-known, so well-known that we have records of secular historians giving testimony to the fact that he lived, did miracles, died, and was purported to rise again. Secondly, he was also so well-known that others would have easily seen who it was being crucified. He had witnesses during his entire trial, people who knew him and walked with him for three years. And when coupled with the fact that his own mother witnessed the entire event, makes it highly unlikely she would have had such emotions about the entire thing had it been someone else, especially when Jesus spoke to her from the cross. And thirdly, if Judas had died in his place, or had Jesus simply ascended without dying on the cross, why did the cross become such a symbol of Christianity? And lastly, The accounts of Jesus' resurrection and how the apostles died for the sake of the resurrection seems to slam the door on that idea. You know, Chuck Colson, who came to know Christ after being imprisoned for crimes he committed while serving in President Nixon's administration, said, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. It was Jesus who died on the cross for us. He was alienated, shamed, and dishonored. Nevertheless, 
It was his resurrection that changed everything. It wasn't imaginary. After all, he was seen by numerous people over 40 days. They spoke with him, ate with him, and touched them. Another thing about Stephen that is amazing is that he serves widows in the daily distribution of food in the verses directly before this. But now he is doing the miraculous and testifying about Jesus. He is growing in his ministry. As Jesus said, if we are faithful with little, we will be faithful with much. Stephen was growing, trying new ministries, and showing himself to be faithful. Now, here's the question. How about us? What are we doing? Are we being faithful with what God has given us in the small things? Or are we squandering it? I think too often we're looking for the big flash in the pan. We want the, the, the personality. We want the followers. We want the flash bang. And oftentimes, it's in the daily activities that we display his glory. Loving our spouses. Loving our kids. Praying. Doing the stuff away from everyone else that's not all over social media. He was growing. Are you? Are you growing right now? Now, I'm not saying it's leaps and bounds because sometimes that happens. You might be in the Moses school of the wilderness right now. You could be suffering, and this is a period of pruning. And pruning is necessary for growth. It's not fun. It's not pretty. It's not what everyone wants to hear. But it's true. And God often uses suffering in our lives to purify our faith and make us of more use to our king. Are you growing? Are you being purified right now? He was growing in his mystery, in his ministry. I mean, where has, where has God planted you right now? What has God given you to use for his glory? And notice here, it actually happened rather quickly. For many of us, it's not that fast. Some believe, actually, that this came less than a year after Peter preached his first sermon at Pentecost. <laughs> Follow God passionately and watch how fast he works. And I'm, watch I'm watching that happen right now as he's growing Apollos watered. I'm amazed at all the people that I've got to meet over the last several months. People that I, I've read their books. I've I mean, I've, I've always wanted to know more about who they are. And now I'm interacting with them. And I consider that an honor. And I consider that all glory to God. He did all this. He's creating it. He's touching hearts and minds. He's moving people to come alongside and partner with us as we're seeking to water the world for Jesus Christ. And I want to give him all the praise and honor and glory. Now, let's get back to our text for a moment. Notice that he was also doing great wonders and signs among the people. And again, I know that I've said that before, and you want to get to, how is it? How is it? I don't know. I do want to focus on one part of it, though, that I don't think we often think about. He was out and about with people. He gave his time and himself generously. He was giving. He's doing great wonders. You can't do great wonders and signs among the people unless you are with the people. He was giving. He sought to help alleviate problems. Do we give to others? Are we willing to give ourselves so that others will be reached? As we will soon see, Stephen gave his life so that others would come to know Jesus. <laughs> and that leads to a question that we all have to ask ourselves. What are we living for that's worth dying for? When we are truly living in life in this way, 
we can see that we may attract enemies. <laughs> As Jesus said very clearly in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things that they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. The portrayals that are the most painful are from those who are the closest to us. As we read in Psalm 55, 12-14, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. You know, enemies will be those often who are close to us. Think about this. Who were the people that came against Stephen? Well, look at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Some believe that these guys are from three different synagogues, but I am inclined to see that it was one synagogue made up of different Hellenists. Members of the synagogue of the freedmen came from four places, Cyrene and Alexandria, cities in Upper Africa, and Cilicia and Asia, provinces in Asia Minor. Freedmen means that they were probably descendants of those who had been liberated from slavery or imprisonment from the time of the Roman general Pompey in 63 BC. It was a Hellenistic synagogue and possibly the one that Stephen came from. He was one of theirs. Think about that. It's no wonder that they were so bothered by Stephen. He was one of them, and for him to change, it had to hurt. I mean, think about that. The people that are closest to us, that are of our tribe, that have they, they come out and they say something different, and we feel like they are traitors. And that's probably exactly what Stephen felt. That's what happens. Those closest to us will not be, or well, they won't like the change in us. When we're truly following Jesus and trying to do what his word says, people aren't going to like that, especially if they've been allowing their culture or their tradition to dictate more than the word of God. I mean, they will not like the change in us. And for one of their own, who had been raised in the synagogue, who had been in school with them, who, who they had eaten with, laughed with, those families, I mean, their families knew each other. It had to hurt to see him turn to this Jesus and this new sect. He was with this new group, one that was growing rapidly, but one that had raised the ire of the leaders in Jerusalem. It was a group that caused a stir everywhere. 
and Stephen was now one of them. We have no idea how Stephen was before he became a Christian, but the change was remarkable. Stephen's change was dramatic, and now he was out and about doing things to propagate the name of Jesus, and that had to be stopped in their mind. And his conversion provoked some pretty tough feelings and led to some very difficult Facebook posts and conversations. I mean, Stephen's turning to follow Jesus challenged them and made them think in ways they didn't like. It was different than what they had been taught and in their family and their friends and the leaders in the synagogue were were actually speaking out against him. A debate had come up between them, and while we aren't exactly sure of the content, we can see that it had to do with the law, Moses, and the Jewish temple, something integral to their identity. Stephen taught that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law of Moses, and he was God in flesh, which made the temple no longer necessary, and that's what they couldn't handle. When we testify about Jesus, we will find that people will not like the challenges we bring to their specific worldview or their lives. Stephen's turning to Christ was not just an individual turning to Jesus, but in their minds, a betrayal to his community. They saw themselves as the guardians as to what their ancestors had taught them. They had built the entirety of their identity on the law, Moses, and the temple. In fact, many of them moved there to be closer to the temple and become more faithful Jews. When the gospel comes into our lives, it challenges the deepest parts of our identity whether that is religious, cultural, familial, philosophical, relational, ancestral, sexual, intellectual, or the sins we love, the addictions that have imprisoned us, Jesus demands complete loyalty. His death and resurrection challenge everything about us, and he demands to be recognized. Who do you say he is? He's either the Lord of all, the greatest liar in history, a lunatic, or a complete legend— He doesn't seem to be a liar. There's too much corroborating evidence. And he would be a lunatic had it not been able to do the things that he said he could do and had witnesses who saw it. He doesn't appear to be a legend either, simply because too much happens too soon for him to grow into a legend. Not to mention that there are non-Christian historical documents that testify to him. Jesus is a challenge to everyone in the world. Not simply as a prophet. Not simply as a teacher but as God incarnate. And he stands before you and asks you, who do you say I am? How you answer that question will define your identity more than anything else, both in how you live now and how you will spend eternity. Notice that this diverse group of Hellenists couldn't stand up to the wisdom that Stephen had So they had to resort to some pretty underhanded tactics. You know, when people can't stop or debate you, they often proceed to attack you. Especially online, where you don't actually have to face someone. If debate doesn't work, then they have to discredit or dishonor you. They have to bring you down in order to exalt themselves. And they may try try to create trouble. And that's exactly what happens here. In verse 11, we read that they secretly instigated men to make false accusations, and they sought to stir up the people, elders and scribes. You may have people who try to discredit you, to get you removed, because you are a challenge to their identity. You call out their sin, call them to account, and people do not like to be challenged and often seek to remove the thing that is challenging their sense of worth and being. 
You may be turned into a boss, brought before an authority at your school or workplace, and may be threatened or shamed. And in a Western culture, you might face litigation. Other cultures, you may face a loss of property, prestige, honor in the community, or even loss of life or harm to your family. And they may seek to charge us with wrongdoing. They want to make us look foolish and dishonorable. They will try to charge us with something in order that others might turn against us. And rather than seek to justify ourselves, we need to let God battle on our behalf and follow Stephen's example. Stephen's attitude in this entire thing is amazing. Notice what the text says in verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This phrase is interesting because it depicts one who is innocent and is reminiscent of similar imagery seen in the Old Testament after Moses conversed with God in the tabernacle. We are told that he came out with his face radiating. It radiated so much that some feared to come near him. There are a few things that we can draw from this. First of all, we can see he gives us an attitude to emulate. Notice that he doesn't respond to their attack with personal justification. We, can, we will see here that he uses this opportunity not to call out his accusers per se, but to testify about Jesus even when it means he might die. And what can we learn from this attitude of his? You don't get the face of an angel or do the ministry that he was doing unless, unless you are actively seeking God. And we too, like Stephen, can actively seek God. Now, I don't want to take this too far, but can people tell that you have been with God? I don't think your face is going to be quite radiating as his is. And I'm not talking about some pietistic moralism, but such a drastic or dramatic change of disposition that affects your daily life and can be seen by those around you. And I know that for me, that's not always the case. It's not a show you put on or a role you play, but a heartfelt change wrought deep in your soul. And we can see that we don't need to respond to false accusations. We don't need to justify ourselves. Stephen didn't because he didn't need to. There was no basis to them. Christ suffered and didn't respond to the accusations that were made against him. We need to allow God to be our advocate. <laughs> Something that we have to admit takes a great deal more faith than we often have. And we can do it when we realize we are accepted in Christ. If God accepts us, then it doesn't matter what the community around us thinks about us. And I know that's horrifying because we do care what people around us think. It doesn't matter what our grandparents, parents, friends, and family think. We may lose them, but we will gain so much more. As we read in Mark 10, 29-31, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Honestly, if we're looking at this from a world perspective, we may lose our homes. We may lose our money, our jobs, our reputations, our brothers, our sisters, mother, father, children, maybe our inheritance or ancestral lands, 
But God will make sure that we get so much more in this world. We will be persecuted, but we will have so much more in eternity. Some who seem to have it all now will be lost at the end of time. And those who are lost now from a worldly perspective will be first in eternity. I think that Stephen didn't need to worry about what others were thinking. And he shows us that we don't need to worry either when we are about the task that God has for us. He was doing what God had called him to do. What task does he have for you to be about? Lastly, we can find peace in knowing that he will accomplish his purpose. We know what happens after this. Stephen gets into a debate that results in him being stoned to death. And yet, his life was not lost. He graduated into eternity, and God used him to inspire a young, zealous Jew by the name of Saul, who undoubtedly was haunted by the image of Stephen's death, who eventually became a Christ follower himself. God used Stephen's story to inspire others to follow faithfully and selflessly. Stephen's story is proof that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God will be victorious. He will prove himself true, even though every man is shown to be a liar. As Paul later said in his letter to the Philippians, in Philippians 1, 21-24, undoubtedly inspired by Stephen's story, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I am recommending that we draw encouragement and follow Stephen's example. And I would encourage you to testify with the entirety of who you are about God's greatness and what he has done in your life and what he has done for every people all over the world. I'm inviting you to pray with me that we might live lives that are worthy of God and that God might use our words, service, and lives to bring others to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Will you follow in Stephen's footsteps? Are you listening today and God is calling you to follow? The Bible is clear. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And that we can't get to God unless we are born again, born from above. God's calling us to trust in him and realize what he did for us on the cross and what the resurrection proved to be true, that he can and will save and transform you. You may lose everything, but what you gain is so much more. And that's the encouraging word for the week. That's your water bottle. Follow Stephen's example. And once again, I want to thank our, 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 our sponsor, Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then you need to call Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and her team. She met with us and learned what we were looking for and got us the house that really met all of our needs, and she can do the same for you. Her number is 630-201-4664. Give her a call or text today and tell her Travis sent you. And that is another episode in the books. And I hope and pray and I really mean this, that this has helped you so that you can water your world. And if it has, would you do us a favor? 
First of all, it would be an honor to have you subscribe to our podcast or leave us a review. And we ask that because the more reviews that are left, the more people get to see this ministry and be encouraged and challenged and grown to be the people that God desires them to be. I would also encourage you to interact with us on our social media pages and share this episode with others. And once again, I want to acknowledge that this can't be done without a team. Kevin O'Brien, Eliana Fleming, Rebecca Badal, and Donovan Martin. That is our Apollos Water team. And I want to leave you with this word. Water your faith. Water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. It is-